Welcome to What Magnificence with Chase Thornock, where we help high-achieving executives and entrepreneurs find answers to their most vexing health problems through the power of what if. Now, here's your host, Chase. Hey guys, what's good and what if? This is Chase. Uh, today, the what if, uh, I guess, a curiosity. A curiosity is a good way to look at the what if of the week. But my curiosity this week arranged around uh, Thanksgiving. It was Thanksgiving this week. And um, I read something from Dr. James D. Nick. He's a pharmacist and a cardiovascular researcher. But basically the question, the what if he asked, is he said, what if flu season isn't because there's any sort of uh, uptick in a virus, but what if the flu season is a, a result of all the trash that we eat during the holidays? Thanksgiving, Christmas, all the sugar, um, all the really unhealthy processed foods that we eat. And I thought, that's a really interesting what if. So this uh, this led me to change my behavior around Thanksgiving. Um, instead of what I've traditionally done, which is not eat anything and then just load up and kind of go into a coma for the rest of the day, I ate something, some good protein about, I don't know, two or three hours before Thanksgiving dinner, and then I ate a moderate to small-sized amount uh, for Thanksgiving dinner, and I felt really good. I felt better than I have basically any Thanksgiving, so I thought that was interesting. No judgment to anybody out there, but it, it was a good one. I recommend trying it. I felt pretty good. I wasn't angry at my kids all day. Uh, so my other what-if that I want to talk about today uh, ra- kind of comes around the autonomic nervous system. We've talked about how the autonomic nervous system is automatic. You can't control it, but what if you could? What if you could control it? What if you could control that vagal nerve? What if you could activate that vagal nerve when you needed to? Could you control your anxiety? Could you control your depression? Could you control the inflammation that underpins so many autoimmune conditions? Because quite honestly, it's already built inside of you. I remember I went to my gastroenterologist uh, several years ago for an appointment about uh, my Crohn's disease, and we were talking about the steroids that I was taking. Now, if you have an autoimmune disease, you're probably very familiar with steroids, um, and all of us probably at some point or another are familiar with steroids, but basically the steroids that you're given uh, for an inflammatory condition are anabolic steroids. And uh, what that means is they destroy fat tissue and they uh, mimic or help your body to, well, they mimic cortisol in your body. Uh, Their uptake, your liver takes it up and converts it into a form of cortisol, which is a stress hormone in your body. And it's also a massive anti-inflammatory drug. But it's interesting because what it does is it mimics a really, really stressful response in your body in order to elicit a strongly anti-inflammatory part of your body, right? So I was talking to the physician, to the doctor, and I said, so this medication influences the sympathetic nervous system, right? It, It increases that fight or flight response. To which he agreed, and I said, what medications do we have to influence the parasympathetic nervous system? And uh, as we sat there, he's a good friend of mine, I still, we we still go fishing, but as as we sat there and and talked about it, it became pretty apparent that we didn't have a lot of medications to influence the parasympathetic nervous system. It was still in some ways an enigma 
And quite honestly, until steroids came around in the 60s or 70s, we didn't have a good way to control inflammation. The downside to the steroids is a massive list. It destroys your bones. Um, For me, the biggest effects were hopefully, I don't know, hopefully, maybe it's destroyed my bones too. I don't know. But um, it... It, you put on a bunch of weight, you get kind of a moon face, you put a bunch of weight on in your face. Uh, but the biggest challenge for me was how it was changing my personality. I was so aggressive all the time, which made sense because I just had massive amounts of cortisol ripping through my body all the time. And over a long term, that becomes a really, really damaging process. So that kicked off kind of my exploration of how can I control these systems? Is there a way that I can impact them? Um, And I was introduced to the concept of um, vagal stimulation, where basically the vagus nerve runs pretty close to the skin at your ears. And so you can introduce an electric current there to try to stimulate the vagus nerve um, to to get a response. And in recent years, we've actually seen things like uh, uh, vagus implants, uh, where they install an electric cathode into the vagal nerve to stimulate it and to, to good results for a lot of people, helps them to reduce their inflammation and their reliance on medications for their inflammatory conditions. Uh, And so I I was learning all about this and I was finding ways to hack this, right? How can I hack that vagus nerve? I've already got it inside of me to control my inflammation. How can I do it? And I got pretty dang good at it. Um, And the reason why I know I got pretty dang good at it was because of what my heart was doing. I didn't realize this. I thought it was a good thing, but my heart rate was slowly dropping uh, over a course of several years. My heart rate, my resting heart rate was in the 50s. Uh, And I grew up honestly thinking that that was great, right? Athletes have a really low heart rate when they're resting. And so I thought that that was a really, really good sign. Um, And as a matter of fact, there were times in the hospital when I was hooked up to monitors that I would tease my wife or the nurses by dropping my heart rate even further. I'd drop it into the 40s and it'd set off all the alarms, right? And I thought that was great. What a cool, super human trick. Well, the, the downside was that I didn't realize that I wasn't creating homeostasis in my body, right? I was over-exercising the parasympathetic side of it and leaving out any sort of balance in the systems. Uh, So today I want to talk to you about one way that I found, and there's probably a lot of them, right? But one way that I found that works, and it works really, really well, and there's some good research behind this process um, for controlling your autonomic nervous system. So I want you to imagine a scenario where you are walking across the street in a crosswalk and you hear a screech of tires, okay? Maybe you weren't paying attention, you're on your phone or something, and you hear that screech and you're going to get hit and you know you're going to get hit. What do you do? Do you breathe in or do you breathe out? You breathe in, right? The car is coming to hit you and we all go, right? And you can even feel your body tighten as you prepare for that impact. When you breathe in like that, you're activating the sympathetic nervous system. Okay, and that fight or flight response. Now imagine you've come home from a long day at work and you finally sit down and take your shoes off or you finally give your loved one a hug, right? What do you do? You breathe in or you breathe out? You breathe out. It's that relaxation response. That's an activation of the parasympathetic nervous system. So the main way in which we can start to control and impact those systems is through our breath, through our diaphragm and our breathing. You breathe over 20,000 times a day to make sure that you have enough oxygen in your body. But how's your breathing? 
<laughs> what's the quality of that breathing? Your body does a really good job at maintaining a baseline, right? But we've all learned about the benefits of deeper breathing. Well, let's talk a little bit about the science, why that matters. So I was introduced to a man named Wim Hof, and you you may have heard of him. You've probably heard of him. But Wim, his first name's Wim, so Wim Hof. He's a Dutchman who, after experiencing kind of the traumatic passing of his wife, um, learned that he could he could process a lot of what was going on by uh, by discomfort, and what that means is he he would expose himself to cold temperatures mainly through water, um, and he found that it was very very therapeutic. And throughout throughout his life, he kind of established this 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 pattern, and he ended up setting all these all sorts of world records for the duration of cold or for running across the Sahara Desert, or not the Sahara, it was a desert, uh, but, but running a marathon in the desert without drinking any water, all these endurance types of things where he could push his body to the limit. And from what I understand, his children came along and said, hey, dad, let's, you know, let's share this a little bit more and let's, uh, let's get some research behind it. Let's see what's actually happening inside your body when you do these things. And so his, his technique is called the Wim Hof Method. And obviously, that's that's his method. Um, there are different ways to do these types of exercises, but basically, it employs three things. He he says it employs the breath, it employs the cold, and that it employs commitment. Right? That that third piece, I'm going to switch out for commitment and switch it in switching connection. And basically the way that this looks is for beginners is you lay down, uh, you want to make sure that you're safe because it can induce lightheadedness for people, but you lay down and you breathe. You breathe in deeply. It doesn't matter whether it's through your nose or your mouth. You breathe in deeply into your diaphragm. He says belly, chest, head, and then you let it go. And it's a really intentional inhale deeply and a relaxed exhale. It's not a forced type of exhale. And you do that breathing 30 times, in and out, in and out. And then at the end of that 30th breath, you breathe in deeply, and you exhale fully, and then you hold it. And for beginners, the first time you hold it for about 30 seconds. Hold your breath for 30 seconds and you listen. You connect to your body. You pay attention to the sensations, what's going on. It doesn't matter what they are. You're just paying attention to them. And you're building neuronic pathways just through awareness of what's going on in your body. Okay. Then after those 30 seconds, you breathe in deeply and you hold for 15 seconds. And then you repeat the process over again. Another 30 breaths. At the end of that one, you exhale and you hold for a minute. And then you breathe in and you hold for 15 seconds. And then you do a third round. And at the end of that third round, you breathe out and you hold for a minute 30 and you breathe in for 15 seconds. Now for a beginner, that's really useful to have kind of that structure, but eventually the goal is to fully listen to your body, right? And maybe 30 breaths or maybe 100 breaths that you're doing at some point. Uh, you may be holding your breath for uh, a minute and a half. You may be holding it for 10 seconds. You may be holding it for three minutes, right? It's just all about listening to your body and not forcing the situation. Once that breathing exercise is done, then you go into the cold. And uh, for me, that looks like a cold shower, right? And um, it's just as awful as it sounds. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Code it. It's terrible. It, and it's meant to be terrible. 
but there is there is some magic there that I want to talk about. But for the beginner, what what I would recommend, and again, be careful. Talk to your doctor before you do any of these things. If you have a heart condition, especially, it can shock your heart. So uh, talk to your physician uh, if you're if you try any of these things. But you you take a warm shower as long as you want. Get nice and warm, and then at the end of it, you step out of the water and turn it to cold and then just kind of put your hands and feet in to try to slowly acclimate and then work your way to getting into the water and the first time it might be 15 seconds right or 30 seconds with the goal that eventually you start shifting it so that those durations become longer at the end of your showers and then maybe you're skipping the warm entirely and going straight to cold and then eventually uh, maybe you're just doing cold all the time. Uh, now, what happens to your body when you do these things? The breath, as I mentioned, you breathe 20,000 times a day. Uh, and why is breath so important? Uh, breath, when you breathe in, obviously you're exchanging oxygen for carbon dioxide. Your body has a built-in monitor to determine when you need to breathe, and that monitor is a pH monitor. It monitors the acidity or base or alkalinity of your blood and carbon dioxide is acidic and so as you hold your breath your blood gets more and more acidic and this is something that can be e easily measured um, and your body wants to say about 7.2 on the pH scale so as it starts to drop below that and become more acidic um, then it starts to it starts to want to breathe right because when you breathe in oxygen is basic and it changes that pH. So when you do this breathing exercise, there's a couple of things that happen. First, you are deeply oxygenating your blood. Now, there's not a huge bump here, right? But let's say your hemoglobin in your blood, which is responsible for carrying oxygen, is at 97% saturation normally. When you breathe like this, you're going to push it up to 100%. Um, and then you're going to start dissolving a little bit of oxygen in your blood. Once again, hemoglobin is far more effective at transporting oxygen. Um, then just oxygen dissolved into your blood, but there's a little bit of a bump there. And the other thing that happens is that the density of oxygen in your tissues starts to increase quite a bit. You're, you're moving things more into the tissues, moving more oxygen into the tissues. The other thing that you're doing is that you're off-gassing CO2. And when you off-gas CO2, your body's ability to balance the pH uh, is slower than your ability to off-gas the CO2. In addition, some of the dissolved carbon dioxide that's already in your blood starts to turn into bicarbonate. Bicarbonate in and of itself, baking soda, is alkaline, right? And what, this ha what ends up happening is that you force your body into a vastly more alkaline state. Once again, this can be measured. I've measured it myself um, and got, you know, my alkalinity ended up around 8.2 or 8.5. When you breathe like this, your brain doesn't necessarily like it. <laughs> um, it's again, the pH starts to get out of whack and your brain, especially your frontal lobe does not operate very well uh, with a alkaline environment. So the frontal lobe starts to shut down. It loses about a third of its blood flow and that blood flow then shifts to the primal parts of your brain, the brainstem area. Um, and then you hold your breath. Okay, and when you hold your breath, what ends up happening is that the oxygen saturation in your blood starts to drop dramatically. It holds stable for quite a while and then it starts to plummet. Now, 
for a lot of people, if your baseline oxygen is in the low 90s, you're kind of in trouble, right? In the 80s, sometimes people die or pass out. Um, as, as I've done these breathing exercises, I've, I've used an O2 monitor on my finger to monitor the saturation in my blood, and it's dropped into the 50s or into the 60s. Now this causes, this hacks your body. Your, your brainstem's monitoring all of this, right? And your brainstem says, uh, this is, this is probably not a good thing. <laughs> it's probably not great that the, uh, the blood flow is dropping or the, uh, the oxygen saturation dropping in the blood. And so it releases a massive cascade of chemicals into your body. Um, and a lot of these chemicals are a fight or flight response. It activates deeply that sympathetic nervous system because it's panicked. It's, it's nervous that there's going to be a problem. So there's some really beneficial things to doing this. The first is, is that the, you get the frontal lobe out of the way. The frontal lobe is a magnificent tool, but it is what is controlled predominantly by conditioning. Um, when you start to shut down that frontal lobe a little bit, then the creativity opens up, right? The possibility of what if opens up. It's just a different paradigm starts to become available to you because as cool and adaptive as the frontal lobe is, it's actually a horrible predictor of the future. Uh, we're really, really bad at, at guessing what the future is going to be and really, really good at worrying about it. So we get the frontal lobe out of the way, we activate that brainstem, and then all of a sudden you get this huge inrush of chemicals that activates the sympathetic nervous system. In studies with this method, we learn that you can eventually, with practice, you can release more adrenaline into your system at any given time than someone who's bungee jumping for the very first time. Why is that important? It's important and illustrated by the fact that when people go into anaphylaxis, so they get stung by a bee and they have an allergic reaction, their throat swells shut. What do we give them? We give them epinephrine, right? Epinephrine is adrenaline. Adrenaline is massively anti-inflammatory. It's a similar type of thing when we take steroids, right? It provides in the short term a massive anti-inflammatory effect for our bodies so that they can perform, so they can run away. Um, the other things that happen are happen on a really, really small level. So the reason we need oxygen is because we produce energy via anaerobic, I mean, aerobic respiration. And through that respiration, we create something called ATP. ATP is the base unit of energy in the body. Cyanide stops the production of ATP. What happens when you take cyanide? You die. That's how important ATP is in this process. So when your body breathes in the oxygen, your cell takes in the oxygen into the cytoplasm. And in the cytoplasm, it can produce two ATP per oxygen molecule. It also produces a bunch of byproducts, including alcohols and other things. And then what your body does, if it has time, is it takes those ATP and those byproducts and pulls it into your mitochondria. The mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cells. And the reason why is because through two processes called the electron, electron transport chain and the Krebs cycle, it takes that two ATP potential of a single glucose molecule and an oxygen, and then it adds oxygen to it. And, uh, can off put a bunch of electrons and it ends up with 26 ATP. Um, and so it's vastly more efficient, right? You end up with one glucose molecule that could turn into two ATP in the cytoplasm or more than 10 times that amount in the mitochondria. 
Now, like I said before, it can you can produce ATP without oxygen. It's called anaerobic respiration, and it's how bacteria create energy. They take a glucose molecule, but they can only produce two ATP, plus they pr produce a bunch of byproducts, one of which is alcohol, right, which we've learned to leverage as a human society. Um, why does this matter? This matters because the energy that your body produces is directly related to how efficiently you can process your glucose and your oxygen. This phenomenon is seen in cancers. So in a lot of cases, the way that we de detect cancer is that we introduce a sugared solution, a sugared radioactive solution, and then we see where it goes. Cancer is unable uh, to digest sugar aerobically. It has to do it anaerobically. So what that means is, is it consumes sugar at a really, really high rate. So when you introduce a sugar solution with radioactivity, with a radioactive substance that you can actually watch, um, it lights up like a Christmas tree because it's using all sorts of glucose, right? Um, so the mitochondria are really, really critical to energy production in your body. Now, if the breath activates the sympathetic nervous system, the cold is what activates the parasympathetic nervous system. We control so many things about our lives as humans, and it's, a, it's great. It's a wonderful thing that we can. But the downside of it is that some of our systems don't get exercised like they should. While it's nice that we have things, we have chemicals, we have drugs that we can use to activate different parts of our systems, what I've learned through this journey is that it's super critical to use the machinery of the body to activate those chemicals. Why is that? Well, I mean, if you think about it, it just kind of makes sense. Our bodies are already built to do these types of things, and they are masterful at balancing the downsides, right? If our body does it, there's no side effects. If we use a chemical to do it, there's side effects. We see that all the time happening. So we use the machinery of the body to activate deeply the sympathetic nervous system. And then, because we control our temperature all the time, through our life, right? We're never exercising fully that autonomic nervous system. It needs to be exercised just as much as your body needs to be exercised, just as much as your mind needs to be exercised. So when you step into the cold, uh, there's massive physiological changes that happen. Why? Because again, your body's faced with the possibility of dying. It thinks. Again, we're hacking the system. We're hacking these processes to better achieve the results that we're looking for. So you step into the cold and all of a sudden, all that blood that was in your arms and your legs from doing the breathing exercises, from activating the sympathetic fight or flight response, reverses direction immediately. When you step in, you go, <laughs> especially the first, I don't know, few months, right? That kind of, that reaction is actually called the dive reflex. In order to be certified in scuba, in scuba diving, one of the things you have to do is you have to go under the water and they pull your mask off you and you have to continue to breathe. If you haven't done this before, it seems foreign that that would be a hard thing to do. But when the water hits your face, it activates that same response, the dive reflex, which basically says, if there's water on my face, I probably shouldn't breathe. That makes a lot of sense, right, for your brain. But when you're scuba diving, that's very inconvenient. Because if your mask gets pulled off, people will panic because they cannot breathe because of that dive reflex. So it has to be trained out of them. The same thing happens to you when you step into the cold. So you have over 100,000 miles, if you laid them end to end, of veins, capillaries, arteries in your body that could go around the planet more than two times 
if you laid them end to end. Every human being has this. And when you step into the cold, all the primitive muscles on each of those veins and arteries and capillaries constrict and close off. This is why if you have heart problems, talk to your physician because it can place a, a great load on your heart to shift dramatically like that. And what it does is it forces the blood back to your core because you're in the cold and you got to preserve your core temperature in order to survive. So it hits the brakes on this system. The number one killer of Americans is heart disease. But we should know better by this point that the heart weighs, I don't know, a pound and a half. And can you imagine a pound and a half pump being able to move fluid two and a half times around the planet? It's just not possible. It's not meant to do it. And so as we get older and these systems are not exercised, it, the heart is the only thing left to try to do it, right? But by stepping into the cold, you exercise all those little tiny muscles and capillaries in your body, right? And start to strengthen the systems that support the heart. The heart actually ends up supporting the rest of those systems. So you're activating deeply the parasympathetic response in your body. Now, this is where I was messing up, right? I learned about the vagal nerve. I learned about what it could do for me. And so I was trying my best to activate, activate, activate the vagal nerve. If you remember, para means part of, right? So the parasympathetic nervous system is part of the sympathetic nervous system. It cannot be activated without an activation of the sympathetic nervous system. Or if it is, it's an imbalanced sort of activation. Uh, and I didn't realize that. I thought the sympathetic nervous system was the enemy. But what the problem was, was an imbalance. I needed homeostasis. I needed balance between those two systems. This is where fascinatingly enough creativity and fear cannot coexist we know that from psychologists right but you cannot get to creativity without fear you cannot get to the parasympathetic nervous system without an activation of the sympathetic nervous system we see this in human biology right in order for us to do complex tasks eat well i mean complex physiologically uh, but standing up requires this delicate orchestration between the sympathetic nervous system to increase your blood pressure so you don't pass out when you stand up to your I think I said sympathetic to your parasympathetic nervous system right that brings it back down so that you stay you, you, you don't stay in hypertension with high blood pressure the same thing is true um, with our reproductive systems uh, a human being cannot achieve an orgasm without a very clear orchestration between the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. They have to work in concert with one another. Uh, you can't have one without the other. That's where fear and creativity coexist, right? So the Wim Hof method has been really foundational for me um, in being able to understand that I can start to control this autonomic nervous system. And so I do. I've learned through my breathing exercises that I can release adrenaline at any time that I need it. And sometimes I need it. The other cool thing to know about this is that these, these neurotransmitters that you have are finite. You only have so much of them in your body at any given time. And so when we have periods of low level stress all the time and there's no exercising of that system, we become chronically depleted of these chemicals, right? Uh, through things, processes like adrenal fatigue, if you're familiar, where we're, we're simply just out of adrenaline. So the next time that you have a fight or flight response, there is no adrenaline to help you through that 
through that stage. I've experienced this. I remember in some of my worst places and I had been on steroids that had messed with that entire system. And uh, I almost rear-ended somebody driving the car, right? And I, I had, I don't know, the best way I can describe it is like a fizzle. <laughs> just like this little <laughs> of adrenaline in my body. And then it just hurt. My kidneys hurt. My adrenal glands hurt. And the, I wasn't, I didn't shake. I didn't have kind of the typical response that I would have expected. That is adrenal fatigue. And it affects so many different systems of your body. So by exercising sympathetic and parasympathetic through breath and cold or through some other ways, you build higher reserves of these neurotransmitters because they are finite. You have to exercise them in order to build up um, your stores. So this week, I want you to ask yourself a question. Here's your what if challenge. Your what if challenge is what if I could take a cold shower? Now, that what if comes with a caveat, and that caveat is to not dissociate and take a cold shower, <laughs> and there's a big difference between the two. One is stepping into the cold and just trying to shut it all out, right, trying to run away from it. The other is stepping into the cold and actually feeling it. The cold is magic because it will force presence. Good luck worrying about what you're going to be eating for lunch that day, right? Or, or the, the big project that you have to do. It forces presence, but you still have control over your ability to dissociate or your ability to associate. What does it feel like? If you had to assign a color to the cold, what does the cold, what color would the cold be? So that's your what if for this week. We'll talk more about the Wim Hof method. It's tremendous. But try it. Do a little breathing. Go on YouTube, look up the Wim Hof method, and you can find a quick breathing session. Do the breathing session. Talk to your doctor. Do the breathing session. And then go into the cold, if but briefly, and see what happens. See what happens to the conditioning in your brain that day, because you know what? You just destroyed it. By stepping into the cold, you destroyed everything that your brain is conditioned to do, which is preserve energy and to keep you alive. Right? So you challenged its conditioning. Now throughout the day, especially as you do this repeatedly, you're going to have the opportunity to challenge other conditioning that you simply weren't aware of.